Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's get started in prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we delight to say that you are our God and we are your people. Lord, we know that this is not of our own doing. We know that it is because you have set your intense love on us, on our forefathers, and you made promises to our forefathers, which included us if we would but... Uh, surrender to the saving work of Yeshua the Messiah. And this we have done, Lord, and therefore we know that you have made your promises true, that you have uh, uh, sent your spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you that we have been given this opportunity to declare your words, to share your ways with those around us. Uh, Lord, we know that this is part of um, our commission, part of our um Part of our mandate, our covenant responsibility to take this light and to be a light and to be salt and to be a witness to, to indeed uh, the utter ends of the earth. Um, Lord, for that reason, we ask that you will give us a steadfastness, give us a, um, a, a sense of purpose and direction as we're studying that we're not just doing this for our own sake or for, 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 or for the mental exercise or for the, uh, as I like to say, the intellectual nutrition. Um, Lord, but we study so that uh, we can be pleasing to you. We hide, our, hide your words in our heart that we might not sin against you. But also, Lord, um, so that we can be ambassadors, so that we can, be, as Paul would say, be prepared to, with an answer. Uh, um, we tear down arguments with, with the, the weapons of the warfare that we have, Lord, these spiritual weapons. And indeed, the word of God is quick and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, help us to continue to hide your words in our heart and to, to make them relevant for our lives. Uh, be with the students again tonight as we embark on another look at the book of Galatians. Um, thank you for uh, preserving the words, for indeed they are uh, our very life. They are our uh, blueprint for living. They are the way that we will govern our walk. Uh, they are... Uh, the light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, and the light unto our path. And so your words are very precious to us. Thank you that uh, I've been given the opportunity to share with the students. I pray that you'll um, allow me to have clarity of thought and um, not be sidetracked, but to give words that are relevant. Um, bless each and every student that has joined me tonight and those who are listening after the fact by way of uh, the recording. And I'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. All right, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuvah in Thornton, Colorado. And I meet with you each week from 7 p.m. to around 7.45 p.m. Uh, Central Standard Time. And this is a live study. It means if you're fortunate enough and have the time and are able to join us each week via Skype, we meet on the Internet. And the, the, um, the commentary is free to all who would like to join um, if you are not able to meet with us each week live via Skype, then uh, hopefully you're listening to this recording after the fact, meaning you've subscribed to the podcast from iTunes or you've just uh, found me on the internet at uh, tatesaytora.com, which is my home website, or at graftedin.com, which is my congregational home website. Either way, you should be able to access the Galatians commentaries from there, including the audio notes. 
and the written notes from which we're um, drawing all the information. Let's date stamp our recording. Tonight is March 25th, 2017, and this is week 57 in our ongoing series. And we're just going to keep going until we make our way through the end of the notes. It's about 120, I'm sorry, about 180 pages long, and currently we're around page 110 or so, 111 tonight. So we'll just keep going week by week until we finish. All right, let's entertain some liturgy tonight. Um, tonight's liturgy is just going to use the the standard Birchat uh, Torah, the blessing for the Torah, and then we'll just pull one verse, one pasuk out of the book of Deuteronomy, and then for the uh, the selection out of the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, we're just going to use um, one passage as well, one verse out of uh, uh, Galatians. In fact, it'll be the verse that we're um, we're studying tonight that we're going to start using. So the liturgy will be really, really short. For those of you who are with me in the live study, let's go ahead and share screens. Give me a moment. All right, so those of you who are in the live study with me should be able to see what I've got pulled up on my screen, which is the Birkat the Torah. It's in Hebrew. So let's scroll down and look at the English as well. I pulled this from HebrewForChristians.org. The word Hebrew, the number four, and the word Christians.org, I believe. Um, and uh, it's available for anyone if they want to uh, uh, go and grab uh, lots of juicy Hebrew nuggets, uh, teach yourself Hebrew, things like that. It's a really nice website. And it's put together by a, a group of believers, so that's what's really nice. Okay, as the name entitles, Hebrew for Christians. Okay, let's read the English first, and then I'll read the Hebrew after that. The standard blessing, which is found in just about every Siddur, reads this thus. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you and make he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Okay, let's read the Hebrew as well. The Hebrew reads... Okay, Baruch Ata Adonai Hamlame Torah La Amo Yisrael. Baruch Ata Adonai Elohinu Melacha Olama Shere Baharba Numakol Ha Amim Venatan Lanu et Torah To. Baruch Ata Adonai Noten Ha Torah. Iverecha Adonai Vaishmarecha Yerodonai Panaive Lacha Vuhunecha. Yisa Adonai Panaive Lacha Vayusin Lacha Shalom. Okay, let's turn to that single verse out of the uh, Torah. It's just going to be Deuteronomy 27:26, the last verse in that passage, which we're going to quote tonight in our reference from Galatians. It reads out of the ESV, quote, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Let me just pull the Hebrew of that same passage. 27, 26, the final verse. For those of you who are looking at my computer on the screen, I've just got, uh, the, this is probably the, West, this, yeah, the, the Westminster Leningrad Codex pulled up, and it's the final Pasek starting over here on the right. It says, Arur asher lo yikim et divrei Torah hazot la'asot, otam v'amar kol ha'am amen. Now let's go back, go over and read uh, Galatians 3, and we're just going to read one verse this time instead of uh, the usual three or four or five or six verses. We're just going to read verse 10, which reads out of the ESV, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. 
Sound familiar? It should. We just read that. Let's read the um, the Greek as well. Let's pull up the Nestle 1904 GNT. And verse 10, which is just this one, for those of you who are in my uh, class live with me. Uh, the Greek, starting right there on the left side, reads, Hosei gar ex ergonamu eisen hupo kataran eisen gegraptai gar hati ep epikataratas pas has uk emene pasen tois gegramenois in to biblio tu namu tu poiesai auta. And we'll only read verse 10 for now. We'll stop there. Okay, let's jump into my commentary. Um... For those of you who have been following along with the live commentary, um, I'm sorry, using the written notes, we're on the top of near the top of page 111. We left off last week with Galatians 3, and we did verse chapter 3, verse 6, basically, which uh, amounts to somewhat of an excursus in my on my commentary, where we looked at Papa Abraham and his interactions with the Davar Adonai, the Word of the Lord, and you remember that essentially, just as a as a refresher. Um, the, the, the main point that I wanted you to take away from that excursus, as it were, um, that kind of rabbit trail, if you, if you will, the main points I really wanted you to take away from that was that I believe that Abraham's um, faith in God was demonstrated grammatically uh, for Moshe's part by, as um, what we might today call saving faith or just, uh, the moment of salvation, if we could kind of put our finger on a verse and say this is when Abraham got saved. Even though it's not theologically um, pertinent or, or crucial that we pinpoint when Abraham became saved, we do know that um, for sure that when we read through the book of, book of Galatians as well as the book of Romans, that Paul highlights the faith of Abraham in connection with the genuine faith that we as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah also have. So we know that there must be a connection for our part. We know that Abraham also is um, singled out as the model of faith because of his, not only because of his faith, but because of his faithfulness, as we're going to find out. So um, I, I think it's necessary for us to point out to uh, traditional Jews, as well as to anyone who would consider themselves a son of Abraham according to the flesh, this would include many Muslims today. I think it's important for us to uh, point out to them that uh, Abraham's faith in God was was not um, was not uh, devoid of genuine faith in Messiah, and we know this from our kind of our Christian hindsight as we read through the New Testament. Sometimes it's not as easy to see when you're reading through the Torah that Abraham's faith was cast in upon God in such a way as to amount to faith in Messiah. In other words, some people might accuse me of reading into the text in the Torah. But Paul didn't see it that way in his day. He didn't see that he was reading into the text when he saw that Abraham's faith was the same as his own genuine faith in Messiah when he told us, when he told the Gentile readers that um, um, if you have the same faith as the faith of Abraham, then you are genuine sons of Abraham, speaking to the Gentiles. Which means to, uh, we know that Paul is equating Abraham's faith as the same faith that we have in Messiah. It must be the same. Meaning it's not generic faith in God. I, have, I, know, I know people who say I've got faith in God. I've got Jewish friends who, who are not Christians. They're not Messianic Jews. And they claim to have faith in God. And they say they're just like Abraham. They have faith in God. And yet I know that their faith in God is, is kind of a, what I call a subjective faith in God. It's not, a, it's not an objective faith in the, in the Son of God, in the person of God, known as the person of Messiah. It's just a subjective um, faith, a kind of a, a, an experiential faith, uh, one that is not yet matriculated to genuine faith in Messiah. So that's the point I'm trying to make. All right, let's turn now in my commentary to Galatians 10, which is this this section uh, that we're going to start getting into, section chapter 3, starting verse 10 and working our way down through the next, say, probably five or six verses, is going to form a, a central part and it's going to occupy most of the um, uh, content of my Galatians chapter 3 commentary. Indeed, um, this is one of the central features of Galatians chapter 3 itself. So let's see what we have to see here. Reading to, into my commentary, I'm only going to take a bite out of chapter 3, verse 10. I'm not going to finish it tonight. Okay, um, the verse reads, as we read it again, I'll read it again in my commentary. It reads, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. In all fairness, um, as I say in my commentary, I did not include Galatians 3.9 in my selection of tough passages. However, Galatians 3.9, in my opinion, begins what is likely a six-part chiastic structure of verses, with 9 and 10 forming the outer two points, what you might call the bookends, and verses 10 and 13 forming the next uh, inner layers, and then verses 11 12 forming the innermost two points. So do you, you all know what I mean by a chiastic structure or a chiasm? If you um, say look at anything that is kind of a mirror, a kind of a mirror structure, mirror image of itself, uh, where we have, if I could use numbers, I would say like uh, three, two, one, two, three, where the number one is in the center, three and three. The, the, the two threes are on the outside, the left and the right side, and the number two is on the left and the right of the number one, so that the number one forms the center of our attention. It becomes the the focal point of this little uh, three, reading from left to right or from right to left doesn't matter. Three, two, one, two, three, just using this basic example. Or if I could use letters, we could say like um, C, B, A, B, C. And the two C's are on the outside edge, and the two B's are just on the inter, uh, the inner, the next layer in, and the number uh, of the letter A is right in the center. So I think everyone's following along with what I mean. That's a chiasm, chiastic structure. Uh, the menorah itself, the seven-branched menorah is a kind of a chiastic structure if you want to look at it that way. Okay, so I think that if we look at the um, the grammar of Galatians 3, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, if we use some certain words that will pop out, then we're going to see that there's a chiastic structure. And this is not the only place it shows up in the Torah or in the Bible. Um, the, the writers of the Bible would seem to be aware of this. Uh, this kind of this um, literary style of writing. And, and the point of a chiasm is to draw the focus point into the center verse or the center word or this or, or whatever the, the teaching is, the theology that's right in the middle. In other words, it's kind of to, to, to create a focal, a fulcrum, a, 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 a zenith, a, a point, a sharp point right in the middle. And so we're going to see that that's the case in this with Paul using this chiasm as well. So I should have read verse 9. We can look at it real quick. Let me just pull it up again so we can read it. Um, so if I were to start in verse 9 and go through verse 14, uh, just reading out of the ESV, would, it would read like this. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And the reason I didn't include verse 9 is because, from a theological point of view, I don't know of any Christian who argues against his average Messianic using verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And remember, in my commentary, I'm only highlighting the verses that seem to be the most contentious between average Christians who are not Messianic and average Messianics who are, meaning Jews and Gentiles who return to their Hebraic roots by following Torah and Jews and Gentiles who do not return to the Hebraic roots by following Torah. In other words, they follow only the, what we what they call the Apostolic Scriptures. That's why verse 9 didn't make it into my uh, commentary. Okay, so what do I have to say in my um, commentary after highlighting this um, chiastic structure? Galatians 3.9 and Galatians 3.14, if you'll just follow along with me. Galatians 3.9 and 3.14 are linked by the topic of Abraham. Galatians 3.10 and 3.13 are linked by the topic of the curse of the law. And Galatians 3.11 and 3.12, which form the central shaft of this chiasm, they're linked by the presence of the word live, L-I-V-E, which is the Greek word zesitai. So I want you to first of all see that chiasm. There are essentially um, three 
points that have mirrors one with another. Verse three, uh, uh, verse nine, verse verse nine mirrors verse fourteen. Verse ten mirrors verse thirteen, and verse eleven and twelve are mirrors of each other. That's the, what the way the chiasm is working right now. So the introduction and conclusion to the theology developed in the chiasmus of Galatians three nine through fourteen is present in three fourteen. In other words, it's kind of the um, the conclusion to the mini-theology, this mini-sermon that Paul's teaching. And I think it's indicated by the Greek conjunction, uh, the Greek conjunction word hina. Uh, in other words, um, it's usually translated as in order that or so that uh, or that, etc. In other words, and, and we can see this in the, uh, the um, we can see this actually in the ESV translation. It's the very first two words, so that. In other words, it's kind of this, it's kind of like when Paul says, uh, uh, when he presents some argument, and then he says, therefore, therefore is kind of there to um, bring us to remember that what he just said is linked to this next word, therefore, uh, kind of this conclusion, so that, or so that, or therefore. And so we find this is kind of a grammatical feature as well. And this is the Greek word hina. So um, there's kind of this, again, this mini sermon that starts in verse 9 and works its way just to the first few verses, the, 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 these, these uh, five verses, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, six verses here. And uh, remember, in Paul's day, the, the, there were no verse numbers. So this is really just a, a complete thought for Paul. But we're going to just take a bite out of it tonight. Uh, if you look at my commentary, um, you'll see that I've got these, uh, this, the chiasmus indicated using letters. So I've got letter A is Abraham, Galatians 3.9. And then I've got an indent uh, for letter B, curse, Galatians 3.10. And then another indent, letter C, live, L-I-V-E, live, Galatians 3.11. And then directly below that with the same indent, I've got the word live again, which is Galatians 3.12. And then I got uh, the, the, the indent goes back towards the left, um, with the word curse, which is Galatians 3.13, letter B. And then the indent goes back to the left again with the letter A, Abraham, Galatians 3.14. And since we're in Galatians 3.10 tonight, I've got a little carrot, a little arrow uh, next to B and uh, curse, Galatians 3.10, and it's highlighted to show you that, that um, the arrow indicates where Galatians 3.10 falls in the six-part chiasmus. And um, that's what we're going to start looking at tonight. By the way, for those of you who've never seen this feature in the Torah, um, it's, it's as I mentioned, I didn't make this up. Uh, many Bible commentators have recognized these these uh, chiasms strewn throughout not only the Old Testament but the New Testament as well. So this isn't something that I've made up. In case you're thinking, "Wow, Ariel, that's really really neat." Nope, didn't make it up. Can't take credit for it. Okay. Um, Let's just get started. We started a little late tonight, so I think I'll go to about the top of the hour. So I'll go for another 15 minutes in our study tonight, and then uh, we'll, we'll draw the commentary to a close. So let's look at this. Here's what my commentary has to say. Essentially, when misunderstood from its larger context, this opening Galatians 3.10 verse, where Paul says that um, uh, all who rely on the works of law are under a curse and things like that, when we take it out of its context, I think it's gonna it will invariably lead the reader to the incorrect conclusion that Paul is advocating some complete mitzvah by mitzvah, that is commandment by commandment, Torah submission, for everyone wishing to attain right standing with the Almighty. Top of page one twelve. That the first century Judaisms did not advocate a view that required complete Torah obedience before one could be counted as a covenant member is attested to in the later rabbinic compilations that survived the destruction of the temple. Let me pause. It's not uncommon to find in Christian camps the argument put forth that in order that, that God was requiring uh, ancient Israel by giving the Torah, that God was requiring ancient Israel that if they wanted to be saved, that they had to keep every single commandment of the Torah as a people. And that not only did they have to keep every single commandment of the Torah, they also had to keep the entire Torah perfectly. And then, therefore, if a person were able to keep the commandment perfectly, i.e., keep all of the commandments, some sort of simplistic grocery list that you could, that one could check off in his journey towards keeping the Torah, you know, mark them off one by one, day by day, you know, the way we kind of mark off a bucket list. If one were to keep the Torah perfectly, 
uh, without failing and were to keep all of it, then supposedly at the end, God would grant eternal life to the covenant participant. And within the same uh, theolo theological position that is put forth by many in Christian Christianity today, um, the, uh, the the futility of such an, of an attempt is, is demonstrated by Paul mentioning that um, no one can do such a thing. No one, in other words, Paul teaching that it's impossible, the impossibility of it, and James also conferring, I'm sorry, yes, I think it's James conferring um, that uh, if you break one, then we break it, that we break all of them. So, in other words, if we the minute we break one command, we, we we're guilty of breaking all of them. Therefore, uh, it's an impossible endeavor. Therefore, the the point from God's perspective is that since God already knew in advance that no one could keep all of the Torah, let alone keep it perfectly, therefore the person would keep trying until he eventually flung his hands up in despair and cried out for God's mercy. Thus, God would enter into the picture and save the individual from attempting to keep the Torah. And so parts of this theology are still um, uh, uh, residual in today's Christian theology, although some people have abandoned uh, such an idea that, that the Jews were trying to keep the Torah perfectly, but it still was it's still present in many church circles. And so it's, it's important that I mention this particular uh, viewpoint. Particularly um, important for us uh, in the in the Torah communities because we sometimes we we who are returning to a Hebraic lifestyle, which includes Torah observance, we sometimes are accused by our um, Christian counterparts who don't go follow after the Hebraic lifestyle. We're sometimes accused of trying to keep the Torah perfectly for some sort of meritorious purpose, or we're accused of trying to keep every single commandment of the Torah because we think that will it will um, bring down some sort of blessing that would not be available to us if we did not try otherwise to keep the Torah. See what I'm saying? So it becomes a relevant argument for us uh, today. So let's read my commentary again. What I the, the, my first line of, of um, answer when I'm trying to uh, um, dialogue with people who hold the view that Jews in the first century thought that they should be keeping all of the Torah perfectly is that if one were to go back and read through the rabbinic compilations, this would be the Mishnah, the Talmud, you know, the Mishnah, the Gemara, which form the Talmud. As well as some of the additional writings, the the, the sayings of the fathers, um, some of the later rabbinic writings. Just just do a Google search for rabbinic writings, and you know, take your pick and start reading through the English versions if you can't read through the the, the Mishnah Hebrew or anything like that. Um, you're going to find that this is not a view that the Jewish people of Paul's day. Um, uh, put forth for to 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 the to the followers. The leaders didn't tell the, the Jewish people, "Hey, this is what God expects of you. You need to keep it perfectly. You need to keep all of it. And you need to keep it perfectly." That's not what people talked about. So, put simply, I say in my commentary, no one in Paul's day thought that a person must practically walk out each and every single commandment in order to receive covenant membership into Israel, viz. salvation. They did not teach. The people, that is the leaders of Paul's day, didn't teach the people, in order to be a covenant member, you need to walk out the Torah perfectly, each and every commandment. That's simply not their position. They did teach that it was incumbent upon covenant members to keep the Torah. Don't get me wrong. They, the leaders of Paul's day were, in fact, of the understanding that the, that the Torah of Moshe was the covenant responsibility given to Israel at Mount Sinai, you know, um, recall Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and that this covenant membership, uh, at least the, the, the Mosaic part of the covenant, entailed um, uh, obedience to the covenant. So it's not like they just thought, well, God gave the Torah because it was a, a kind of a, a nifty idea that God would include with the Abrahamic covenant, and kind of this nifty idea that if the people of Israel ever felt that it was something that they wanted to do, something that maybe they had time to do, you know, in their spare time. If they've got a chance, maybe they could glance at the scroll of the Torah and, you know, see if there was something in there that caught their attention or something that they might uh, be inclined to do as a hobby, 
you know, if the Sabbath looks appealing to you, maybe you might try to enjoin upon it, keep it as a, as a as a nifty idea that might be really fun to do as a family a family um, uh, exercise or or uh, activity. You know, if you're looking for a children's game, maybe it might be really fun. If you want to try and keep some of the the laws related to the food laws, things like that, you get the you, you can kind of hear the, uh, the the humor in my voice. The Torah is not just a family activity. It's not just a, a, a real nifty hobby that God gave to Israel that he would hope that they would um, uh, you know, kind of gravitate towards as, as they live their life in the land of Israel. That's not the point. It was a covenant agreement, and it was part of the covenant that was uh, attached to what we today would call the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, it, it was a responsibility as their people to do what God asked them to do. It wasn't something that they really had an option to do. It was they, they had made a promise for their part. It was something that they had covenantally bound themselves. It was a commitment is the point I'm trying to make. And yet it wasn't the type of commitment that made them in God's, into God's people. Nor did anyone in Paul's day believe that God expected this type of, be, of obedience from covenant Israel. If you read through the Torah, God did not use the language of, hey, Israel, you've got to keep all of it or else you're not my people. Now, we do see that God does use the language of, um, therefore, Israel, um, continue in all of these words of the covenant, keep all these words and things like that. So there is the idea that there's no picking and choosing. You can't say, well, you can't say as an individual Israel out, okay, we'll keep half of it, but the other half, it just doesn't really appeal to us. It's not really, um, how do we say, it's not really politically correct for us. Therefore, we don't really like the uh, the parts that 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 speak of, say, uh, forsaking idolatry or something like that. After all, everybody else in the land is is worshiping idols. Wouldn't really be, um, um, wouldn't really be, uh, what do we say today? Wouldn't wouldn't really be politically correct for us to, you know, it wouldn't be PC for us to uh, forsake all idolatry, God. So we'll we'll keep the food laws, God, and we'll we'll bring the sacrifices. But as far as uh, steering clear of idolatry. We've chosen, we've elected, we've decided as a people that we're not going to do those parts. Again, there was no picking and choosing, which is why God uses all-inclusive language when he talks about keeping the Torah. It's either all or none that you are um, committing yourself to. That's the point I'm trying to make. So this popular Christian viewpoint where um, God expected all of Israel to keep the Torah perfectly or God expected all of Israel to keep the Torah in order to be counted as uh, righteous. This viewpoint is unfortunately incompatible with a careful reading of the Torah itself. And I'm kind of highlighting that fact because many Christians still hold to this idea that God gave the Torah to the people of Israel in order for them to be righteous if they would keep it perfectly. So our verse that we read about where Paul says, uh, when we go back and read it again, curse uh, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. It sounds like Paul is quoting the Deuteronomy passage as proof that, the, that everyone in Israel had to keep every part of the Torah or else they would be cursed if they didn't keep one part. In other words, if they kept most of it but but failed in keeping the other half of it, they would be cursed. But that's not the case either. God's not saying you're going to be cursed if you don't keep all of it. That's not it either. Uh, so let's let's read down and see how much more we can uh, cover in the, in this five minutes that I've got left in my in my commentary. Our verse is actually, as I understand it, a contrast to the previously the previously. I got a typo there, to the previous statement made in verse 6, where Avraham is said to have been considered righteous on the basis of his faith. Remember, we just came through uh, studying this idea that Abraham is the model of faith for Jews and Gentiles who place their genuine faith in God, which in Paul's day, because the Messiah had already come, genuine faith in God is tantamount or equal to genuine faith in Messiah. One cannot say that they have genuine faith in God without recognizing the Messiah who has come. And this is true today as well. Anyone who would be wished to be counted as righteous by God must reckon with the fact, the historical fact, that the Messiah has come. He has presented himself to God's people. The promises that the Messiah was come have now um, been enacted. Yeshua has uh, has stepped into the scene of history. He is a reality. 
He is no longer just a promise given to the people. And therefore, if we are to be counted as righteous in God's sight, genuinely righteous, eternally righteous, we as Jews and Gentiles must contend with the reality of Messiah's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his intercession. In other words, there's no way around it. And that's what Paul brings to the, to the Galatian readers, is that because of what Messiah has done, Abraham can now be looked at as the father of faithful Jews who, faith, have, who uh, place their faith in Jesus, as well as faithful Gentiles who do the same. Abraham is said to have been considered righteous on the basis of his faith in Yeshua. By comparison, those who do not imitate faith-filled and faithful... Abraham, but instead seek righteousness by circumventing God's true method of declaring a person righteous, these people, according to Paul, actually fall into the trap of being cursed by the very Torah they exalted in the first place. Isn't that irony? The very tool, the very thing that the detractors of Paul's day, the influencers, the Judaizers, if you want to call them that, the very thing that they were thinking was going to bring them righteousness, the Torah of Moshe itself, is actually going to stand in judgment of them. The Torah is going to judge them. Indeed, this, this is uh, spoken of elsewhere in the Torah, in Paul's letters, but I'm not going to get into it right now. The law itself, I think, I think these are even words of Yeshua. That Moshe is going to actually stand in judgment on them on Judgment Day. Um, I think Yeshua says this around John chapter 8 or something like that, John chapter 6. Moshe is actually going to stand in judgment. They're going to be standing, uh, judged by the very law that they thought was supposed to vindicate their righteousness. And it's because they are relying on a false method of being declared righteous, a method that seems to be true and, and accurate, but in, in the end is proving to be spurious. So what do I keep on saying? What do I go on to say in my commentary? When Shaul uses a statement the likes of, quote, all who rely on observing the law, end quote, uh, it's, it actually shows up as works of the law in other versions because we have not observing the law, but it's actually ergonamu in the Greek, like I read it in our liturgy. And ergon amounts to works of the law. Workings, if you want to turn it into a participle. Um, but works of the law in other versions. Um, what Paul is really saying is he's referring to two positions as I understand it. Primarily and historically, Paul is speaking to those influencers, those Judaizers, the agitators, the circumcision faction, whatever you want to call the, the, the people who he's opposing. He's speaking to these people. These were people who believed that covenant status, and when I say covenant status, I don't mean, I don't mean Mosaic covenant status. I mean membership within the people group of Israel. In other words, the, the overarching concept of this idea that you are a child of God, when God says, you will be my people, he's talking, he's using covenant language. And there's, there's this, there's, there's one sense in which there's only one covenant. And that is the covenant that either you're in or you're out in that sense. There are, there are smaller, uh, subcategories of the covenant, but for right now I'm just talking about the, the general overarching generic idea that either you are one of God's people or you are not one of God's people. Um, meaning um, God will recognize you as uh, a recipient of his blessings uh, or not. Um, the, the influencers believe that covenant status was extended by God due to ethnic status. Essentially, um, they believe that whether native-born or convert, one was a genuine covenant member. And for them, I suppose we could say that the Abrahamic covenant was the primary covenant in view, and I would agree with that, meaning... Um, the Abrahamic Covenant was kind of the, the beginning of the Jewish people from their perspective. Genesis chapter 12 is recognized by Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 12, and 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 through the and through say maybe the bulk of the the rest of the the Old Testament, most Christians would say that that all of that section of the Old Testament is basically for the Jews. 
uh, everything before that, say Genesis 1 through 11, is essentially historical narrative for Gentiles or anybody who wants to read the Bible. But starting in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish people, according to those Christians, and I think according to the influencers. So whether native-born or convert, you had to be Jewish to be a covenant member. For more on this nationalistic view, um, I want you to see the quote by James D.G. Dunn in my comments to verses 13 and 14 below. Don't worry, we'll get there. So, uh, I, I keep saying in my commentary as I draw it to a close, such individuals, the people who held this view in Paul's day, remember, these were people who, who were primarily were unsaved Jews, but it, it also, according to Acts chapter uh, 15, verse 5, included some of the believing Pharisees as well. Um, um, such individuals, in, instead of living within the blessing of Hashem, uh, were in reality found to be the object of God's curse because instead of submitting to God's way of making a person righteous through objective faith in Yeshua, the, the kind that Abraham had, these people were said to be setting up their own way of righteousness through ethnic status or through Israelite membership, a charge that's leveled actually, it's actually leveled by Paul against unbelieving Israel in Romans 9, 31 and 32, as well as 10, 3. He's going to say this. He's going to use the language of setting up your own way of righteousness. In other words, Paul, speaking from the vantage point of a believing Jew, someone whose eyes have been opened to genuine and lasting righteousness because of his faith in Messiah and because of the finished work of Yeshua in his life, because of that, Paul can now do an about-face and look at the former lifestyle, his former theology, his former blindness as a traditional Jew, as a as a um, as one of the one who belonged to the group of the influencers, as as a Judaizer or something like that, as a traditional nationalistic Jew. Paul can look at this viewpoint and he can realize the error of his ways. He can realize that instead of surrendering to God's way of making a person righteous, that actually, prior to coming to faith the Messiah, he was actually seeking to establish his own self-righteousness. Although, when he was blind, he wouldn't have called it that, right? If you ask your average traditional Jew today, are you self-righteous? They're going to say, not really. No, at least I don't think they're going to talk that way. They're going to say, no, we're righteous because God has made us righteous, because we were chosen by God, because we were elected, because we were singled out to be God's treasured people. His, what do we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse uh, 5? One of my, uh, uh, um, one of my uh, uh, good friends and fellow uh, uh, Torah students brought this verse to my attention just last week or two weeks ago about how that God said, if you will keep my commandments, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be my unique people. Right, so the Jewish people of today would say, "No, we're, we're, it's not of our own doing. It's God singled us out. God chose us to be His people. God, God delivered us from Egypt and gave us the words of Torah. So it's not self righteousness. We're doing. We're just doing what God tells us to do. Our righteousness is based on the Torah. That's what they would say. And yet they're they're blinded to the fact that unless a person surrenders to the finished work of the Messiah, then in fact there's only one other option. You are in fact." seeking to establish your own righteousness. Because what does Yeshua say? If you're not for me, you're against me. So we know there's only two, only one, one way of being counted as genuinely righteous, and that is to surrender to the, to the righteous one himself, Yeshua, the Messiah. Secondly, I think that in saying that all who rely on works of the law or observing the law in some versions, um, I think the second position that Paul is attacking uh, is a more general sense like the church is fond of pointing out. In other words, I say in my commentary that Paul is likely teaching against any superstitious notions that God extends covenant status to the individual, whether Jew or Gentile, who simply avails himself of Torah obedience outside of genuine faith in the giver of the Torah. You know what I'm saying? In other words, we've got Jews today. This is primarily for Jews. We've got Jews today who... Um, would agree that they are Jews at by birth. In other words, they've got this heritage that was handed to them simply because they are born to Jewish parents. So they've got Jewish heritage. They've got Hebraic 
heritage. Their parents are Jewish, and therefore, because of that, they feel that they're kind of born into covenant status before or even in the absence of trying to do any sort of Torah. We find this in, say, um, many, many thousands, even millions, I would say, of unsaved Jews today who don't even care about keeping the law of Moses. In other words, they're ethnic Jews, they're cultural Jews, um, but they're not really religious Jews. You know what I mean? They don't they don't care about keeping kosher. They don't really care about attending synagogue. They don't really even care about reading Torah. They just live their lives as humans. They just live their lives as people. Um, doing the best they can to be upstanding citizens of whatever country they reside in. But they don't really gravitate towards anything religious. They wouldn't even call themselves religious. They are even sometimes repulsed by the religious rite or by Orthodox Judaism or things like that. They don't really open up the Torah. Maybe they go to synagogue once or twice a year, maybe during Passover and Yom Kippur, something like that. Um, But they still call themselves Jewish, but uh, you wouldn't really know it. Uh, from any type of religious activity that they attend. You understand what I'm saying? So these type of people think that they're okie-dokie just because they're Jewish. And I think um, these are the type of people that would say, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I have a a, a very uh, small amount of Torah observance that I do. You know, maybe I got a mezuzah on my door because my parents put it there, or maybe I was circumcised as a boy because my parents did it. And, you know, maybe I do my best not to eat shellfish and ham, but, you know, every now and then I have a ham sandwich, so what's the big deal? Uh, You know, God doesn't really care if I, you know, indulge every now and then, blah, blah, blah. So these type of people think that, you know, a a kind of um, generic view of keeping Torah is okay, but, you know, you you don't really have to be a a fanatic when it comes to keeping Torah. You 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 don't have to be scrupulous. You don't have to really dot all your I's and cross all your T's. I mean, just keep as many as you can and... You know, do the best you can and, you know, say a prayer to God every now and then, blah, blah, blah. So I think these type of people think that they're okay. And and Paul would say, no, all who rely on observing the works of the law are actually under a curse too. So this would kind of catch them in that clause. And I think this is proven by the conditional clause, um, all who rely on, right? All who rely on, all who think that just being Jewish or that they're okay or all who actually think that being Jewish and keeping the Torah that they're okay. Um, I go on to say in my commentary to what would the to what would the individual be relying on for his righteousness? Uh, it must be either his supposed legal status as a Jew, which like the people in Paul's they were really highlighting, or his Torah observance, maintenance, or a combination of both, viz. covenantal nomism. Paul would have argued against either view. That's the point I'm trying to make, right? Either they're just generically being a Jew or being a religious Jew like like maybe the Orthodox do today. So that being said, I think I'll stop here in my commentary and draw it to a close. We've spoken for about 45 minutes, and that's really all I'm going to do for tonight. Um, stay with me next week, and we'll pick this up where we left off, and we'll we'll begin to unpack this verse a little bit more. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of law. Uh, what does it really mean? What do I think it really means? And how does it fit in with Paul's theology right here, smack dab in the middle of Galatians chapter 3? We'll pick up that next week. Let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live study with me, stay with me. And we'll talk, we'll talk for another, say, 20 minutes or so, okay? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to sit once again before the students and share the words of life with them. Indeed, Lord, you have promised that um, your words are, are spirit and they are life. And that's why there is no other place to turn to. There are no other words that bring life the way you do. You are the genuine bread come down from heaven. You are the true bread that has come down from heaven. And therefore, as you have promised, as we eat of your flesh and drink of your blood, we will indeed find true life. Thank you, Lord, that you've demonstrated by your words, by your actions, by your death on the cross, that you are the one and true promised Messiah spoken about in the scriptures of Israel. You are the one that we were that we waited for. You are the one that was promised by the prophets of old. And therefore, we will look to no other for our righteousness. We will not look to our own ethnicity for our righteousness as Jews. We will not look to our Torah observance for righteousness. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated that as we um, as we're filled by the Spirit, that we can not only be counted as sons of Abraham, that we will also be counted as genuine, righteous members of the community. Thank you, Lord, for um, uh, drawing us close to you, for allowing us to uh, to uh, gather together in your name and to be able to study these words. For indeed, uh, we need them so that we can put them to practice, so that we can put feet to our faith, so that we can uh, have a blueprint for living, a model, a way in which to walk. Uh, a standard of righteousness that we do not make up of our own. Uh, bless us as we go this week and practice words of Torah, uh, studying in order to do and then in order to teach, like Ezra said. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>